Good evening. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the 2016 Lobel Lectures in Psychiatry. My name is Will Davis, and I'm a research fellow on the Lobel Lectures and Research Program. The Lobel Program was established in 2013 through a generous donation from Dr. Pierre and Felice Lobel. And we're delighted that Pierre and Felice have been able to travel here from Seattle this evening to join us. The program's hosted by the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics under the direction of Professor Julian Savalescu, whose support I also gratefully acknowledge. I'd also like to thank the Oxford Martin School for providing this wonderful venue this evening. The aim of the Lobel program is to forge links between scientists and philosophers interested in clarifying the causal and conceptual links between the biological, psychological, and social factors that contribute to mental illness. Lobel lecturers in past years have included Professor Kenneth Kendler in 2014, Steve Hyman in 2015. This year, I'm extremely pleased to introduce Essie Veding, who is Professor of Developmental Psychopathology at University College London. Professor Veding is co-director of the Developmental Risk and Resilience Unit at UCL, which focuses particularly on understanding the developmental pathways to persistent antisocial behavior and the neurocognitive consequences of childhood maltreatment. She's authored over 130 articles, is a Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award holder, and was the 2011 recipient of the Spearman Medal from the British Psychological Society. Professor Veding will be lecturing this evening and tomorrow on the topic of developmental risk and resilience, the challenge of translating multi-level data to concrete interventions. I'd like to uh, just remind everybody here that tomorrow's lecture will be held at the Grove Auditorium at Magdalen College, not here at the Martin School. But without further ado, I'd now like to warmly welcome Professor Veding to get started on what surely will be a fascinating set of lectures. Thank you, Will, for a very warm welcome. And um, I'm extremely pleased to be uh, giving these lectures. And I want to thank Pierre Lobel and uh, Felicity also for um, this opportunity. I will be talking about developmental risk and resilience and how we can harness data from multiple levels of analysis to try and understand why some people develop mental health problems and other people seem to be more resilient to developing such problems. Mental health problems are one of the leading causes of overall disease burden in the world. And it's been estimated, for instance, that 20 to 25% of the adults in US or United Kingdom suffer from a diagnosable mental health problem at any one time. So this is a problem that is really very present and touches all of us, either in person or via people that we know. What is remarkable is that most of the mental health problems start by the age of young adulthood. So 50% of the mental health problems have already begun by the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24. So it's clear that the origins of these mental health problems are in childhood, adolescence, and early adulthood. And mental health problems have lifelong consequences for the individual, for society, and for economy. They can impact individuals' uh, physical health across the life course, 
their mental well-being, obviously, their relationships with other people, their employment opportunities, and also their ability to achieve their full potential uh, in educational domain. But despite this really substantial burden, even the best treatments for mental health problems are still relatively limited. And significant proportion of individuals who suffer from mental health problems do not improve or they relapse following treatment. What we know from treatments as well is that they do not necessarily have lasting effects and often in the uh, treatment follow-ups, the period that people use in the studies to follow up the individuals are very short. So we don't know how long these, these uh, remission following treatment lasts. And in fact, what little data we have suggests that uh, many people go back to manifesting with the mental health problem. And I want to illustrate uh, the rather bleak picture by some figures uh, for the effect size of the success of very common treatment for depression in young people, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. When this treatment was first evaluated, it looked relatively promising. So in the 1980s and early 90s, uh, many of the treatment studies reported large effect sizes. But as we have accumulated more studies of the efficacy of the cognitive behavioral therapy for depression in young people, and as the sample sizes have got bigger and the study designs have got better, um, the picture is not looking so good. So if you look at the data from between 2000 to 2005, either we see a small effect size of treatment or no effect at all. So we'll clearly need to do better in order to harness advances in science to improve prevention and treatment of mental health problems. But it's going to be a very complicated task and there's not going to be a single magic pill, either in terms of the kind of studies that we can do in terms of providing us answers or in terms of actually treating these complex conditions. And in order to get better, we need to understand causal mechanisms at various different levels of analysis. We also need to delineate how these causal mechanisms at the different levels of analysis unfold across development. And we need to understand the role of different environmental ecologies and how they impact these different uh, levels of analysis. And there are further complications. And I want to introduce you to two, two notions from the field of developmental uh, psychopathology. The first one is um, equifinality. We often measure outcomes um, and arrive at diagnoses by charting behavioral symptom criteria. But people may present with similar behaviors for several different underlying reasons. If you then go on to treat these people with a single intervention, inevitably only some people will be helped. And this notion has led uh, people, including people at the National Institutes of Mental Health in the United States, to propose that we should, instead of focusing on the behavioral outcomes, try and focus understanding the mechanisms. So many of you may have heard of the so-called RDOC initiative, uh, which is encouraging people to study mechanisms 
instead of the uh, focusing on diagnostic criteria and trying to understand how individual differences at mechanistic level may increase risk for developing psychiatric disorder. But this introduces a different kind of problem, which is that a similar cause may lead to multiple different outcomes, depending on the kind of environments and individual experiences, maybe some other background factors such as uh, the rest of the genetics, whether someone has better or worse regulatory capacities, for instance. So you may focus on a single mechanistic cause, for instance, threat reactivity in individuals, but how that cause ends up manifesting over development uh, may differ in different people, depending on their different genetic background, different environmental conditions, uh, different functioning of other neurocognitive systems. I will use the first lecture of this series to try and illustrate some of these uh, complications and how we might make headway despite of them. And I will focus uh, on my own uh, topic of research, which is development of antisocial behavior, which is what we call conduct, problem in conduct problems in children and youth. And I use it as an exemplar to illustrate how we can use multiple levels of analysis to understand heterogeneity within a behavioral presentation. So how can we understand how different children might come to develop conduct problems uh, because of different underlying vulnerabilities? And I will also use this phenotype to illustrate the challenges of integrating uh, multi-level data. So as I've already mentioned, conduct problems uh, refer to antisocial behavior in children and in young people. And broadly defined, they are violations of age-appropriate societal norms and rights of other people. And these sorts of behaviors include bullying and threatening other people, violence, cruelty, physical fights, robbery, coercion, including sexual coercion in older children, running away, destruction of property, and so forth. In order to be diagnosed with conduct disorder, if you present significant levels of conduct problems, you have to manifest behavior that causes clinically significant impairment in social and either educational or occupational functioning. So this is not just uh, doing the odd delinquent act when you're an adolescent or being a little bit naughty or answering back to your parents. These are departures of atypical behavior that are sufficiently grave that they cause clinical concern and they cause harm to the young individual themselves. But like any other uh, diagnostic criteria that we currently have in diagnostic manuals, children who present with uh, conduct problems form a heterogeneous population. So they don't all have identical presentation, they don't have identical risk factors for their conduct problems. So this is a very good phenotype to illustrate the phenomenon of equifinality. You may have two different children who both present with clinically significant levels of conduct problems, but they may do so, so for very different reasons. And there we have the inherent challenge of uncovering underlying mechanisms. So these mechanisms are not visible to the naked eye, they're multi-level in nature. Um, and when we try and study the mechanisms that are related to a disordered outcome, we select individuals based on their behavioral symptoms, and then we try and 
find an underlying cause. So there's a clear circularity of argument here. If we already know that they are unlikely to present within this diagnostic criteria for the same reason, yet we use that diagnostic criteria to select them and then try and look for mechanisms, it seems that we are on a bit of a fool's errand. One approach to try and get around it um, is to use subtle differences in behavior to provide clues for subsequent systematic investigation at different levels of analysis. Now, this approach is clearly not ideal. We're still starting with the behavior, and we can't assume that the behavioral indicators or that our ability to observe them are always entirely accurate. But it is sadly the best we have as a starting point. And once the data comes in, it will then indicate to us how reasonable that triangulation has been. Um, do we get differentiation at multiple levels of analysis? Do we have meaningful way of parcelating the heterogeneity that is inevitable when we start with uh, behavioral diagnostic criteria? Uh, one of the ways in which we can differentiate the children who have conduct problems is by uh, charting so-called callous unemotional traits in these children. These traits include lack of remorse and guilt, lack of empathy, and shallow affect. So these are children who present with antisocial behavior, who don't feel bad about what they've done, who seem to lack empathy for their fellow human beings, and who don't form the same kind of attachment relationships with their fellow human beings than do other children, including other children with conduct problems. These traits are currently used as a specifier in the DSM manual, although they are called limited pro-social emotions in the diagnostic manual. I think they couldn't quite bring themselves to call it callous and emotional traits, so we have a slightly more PC term. And our group has focused on studying children with conduct problems who either have high levels of these callous and emotional traits or lower levels of such traits. Um, and we have focused on studying them at multiple different levels of analysis. And I will talk about um, that work now. So at behavioral level, children who have conduct problems and high levels of callous and emotional traits are characterized by their ability and proclivity in engaging in proactive aggression. So these are individuals who are able to plan their aggressive acts in order to get something that they want. They don't feel sorry for their victims, and they also don't worry about hurting other people. They don't feel guilty about what they've done. And they often have low levels of anxiety. In contrast, children who have conduct problems and low levels of callous and emotional traits often aggress when they feel under threat. So there's often a clear environmental trigger for the antisocial behavior of these children. They feel bad about hurting other people once they've had a little bit of a chance to calm down. And they often have high levels of comorbid anxiety. So at behavioral level, there are some stark differences between these two subgroups of children with conduct problems. And these differences have got people, including us, interested in trying to understand whether these two groups also differ in how they process information around them. 
So ourselves and other people have given a number of experimental psychological paradigms to try and interrogate how these children see the world around them and how that might be different from the rest of the population. And the kinds of paradigms we use include getting these children view faces and see the faces develop into an emotional expression and we ask them to tell us when they think they know what the emotional expression is. And I'm going to play you a few and I want you to tell me when you think you know what this emotional expression is. Smiley, happy, happy face. Okay, let's try next one. Wait a little, and if you know, if you think you know what it is, uh, shout it out loud, don't be shy. Fear, someone said, yes. There's someone looking very scared, and the way you can tell is that you see the eye whites go very big, which is, uh, if anyone's watched Hitchcock, you get lots of close-up with very big eye whites. So we use tasks like this and also other experimental tasks to try and interrogate how children respond to other people's emotions. And what we have found in the past uh, 15 years is that children who have conduct problems and high callous and emotional traits have difficulty in both recognizing and reacting to other people's emotions, in particular to other people's distress. So using stimuli like that, or using experiments that, for instance, uh, require attention to emotional stimuli, we and others have shown that these children have blunted reactivity to other people's emotions. So while most people are distracted if they see someone else in distress, these children are not. Most people are quick to pick up on other people's distress cues. These children are not. Curiously, they also report feeling less fear themselves. And one of the things that we're interested in investigating at the moment is whether their difficulty in understanding other people's distress maybe stems from the fact that they feel less of that emotion themselves. All of us find it easier to empathize with people who are like us, and we find it more difficult to resonate with the experience of someone who is not like us. Perhaps these children are perfectly good at empathizing with other children with high callous and emotional traits, but less good at understanding and resonating with people who have an experience of being in distress. Uh, they don't display distress emotions so often themselves. Standard conditioning tasks also show that these children are less responsive to punishment. So they are less fast in learning about punishment stimuli and changing their behavior in response punishment. So overall we see this blunted uh, pattern of emotional reactivity in multiple uh, different paradigms. And we think that this sort of presentation explains why these children are so difficult to socialize. Typically when we socialize young children we do a lot of empathy induction. We ask the children to imagine how someone else is feeling. We also give sanctions when someone behaves in a way that we don't approve of they receive a sanction. Now, if sanctions are not effective, and if someone else's distress doesn't really touch you, two powerful tools of socialization do not have the same impact as they do for typically developing children. 
In contrast to this profile, children who have conduct problems and low levels of callous and emotional traits look very different. They are, if anything, overreactive to certain emotional stimuli. They perceive even neutral stimuli as threatening sometimes. And they certainly, in tasks where they require to pay attention to emotion, pay attention to emotion, and it distracts their performance. So quite unlike those with high callous and emotional traits, the group with low callous and emotional traits either has typical or exaggerated emotional reactivity to other people's emotions. Now, it would be very surprising if we saw these behavioral and psychological differences and there were no differences at the level of the brain. So our group and other groups have interrogated the brain function in children with conduct problems. And many of the studies have in particular focused on the functioning of the amygdala, which is a brain region that is very important in processing salient and emotional stimuli. It's an evolutionarily very conserved region. Even the reptiles have it. And it essentially alerts you to something that you ought to pay attention to in your environment. Number of fMRI studies of children with conduct problems have reported atypical activation of amygdala to emotional stimuli. But many of the earlier findings were mixed. Some studies found that children with conduct problems had exaggerated amygdala reactivity to emotional st uh, stimuli. Other studies found that these children had blunted a reactivity. But the early studies didn't differentiate based on the callous and emotional traits. And we were the first group to directly contrast these two groups of children and study their amygdala responsivity to emotional stimuli. And we were interested in finding out whether the subtypes with high and low callous and emotional traits differ in how they process fear. And we thought fear would be an interesting stimuli to probe emotional reactivity um, in these groups with because it's an emotion that is both indicative of someone's distress and also of potential threat in the environment. So it should be an emotion that captures uh, both of these groups, but we thought maybe in a different way. We might expect to see uh, exaggerated reactivity in the low callous group and blunted reactivity in the high callous group. We used a task that had been uh, well validated in healthy adults by Paul uh, Whalen and his group. And in this task, uh, individuals are presented with emotional stimuli for 17 milliseconds or calm stimuli for 17 milliseconds. And this stimuli is then replaced by a calm stimuli of different identity. So in both conditions, you see a behavioral, uh, sorry, a perceptual change um, with the identity being replaced. But only in one condition do you have an emotional phase that is replaced by a backward mask. Presenting something for 17 milliseconds means that it's not consciously perceived, and we checked this uh, with our participants. It also is a presentation that is shorter in duration than your first saccade. So we tried to ensure that as much as possible, the children were receiving similar visual input of this emotional stimuli, because they would all basically have the first um, kind of visual input 
before they were able to move their eyes. And what we found was that the group who had conduct problems and high levels of callous and emotional traits showed blunted amygdala reactivity to these pre-attentively received fear faces. Typically developing children were somewhere in the middle and the ones with conduct problems and low callous and emotional traits showed heightened amygdala reactivity compared to the typically developing children. And none of these findings changed when we controlled for any of the clinical covariates. So the children with conduct problems had symptoms in some other domains as well, which is very common uh, in the clinical groups, but they did not explain our findings. So what we saw, unsurprisingly perhaps, is heterogeneity of neural response to negative emotions in children with conduct problems. And this has also been found using a number of other paradigms, including paradigms with complex emotional scenes, um, paradigms where we've looked at attention to negative emotion, as have other groups, and also paradigms uh, where we have looked at how these children process pain. So amygdala and also another brain area, insula, which is involved in uh, brain perception and interoception, uh, show atypically low activation in children with high callous and emotional traits and either typical or exaggerated reactivity in the group with low callous and emotional traits. And we think that this sort of pattern of response may help us understand why children with conduct problems and high callous and emotional traits may find it easier to engage in proactive aggression. If you don't automatically resonate with other people's distress, essentially you're lacking the normal break that most of us have uh, when we think about hurting somebody. So if, even if we're angry with someone, and our immediate response is to hurt them, most of the time, just by imagining the distress that we would cause, we find it so aversive that we don't want to uh, do it. These children are lacking that uh, aversive response to other people's distress. Our findings may also explain why children with conduct problems and low callous and emotional traits may be prone to reactive aggression. If you are in a heightened state of alert, for potentially threatening stimuli. You are essentially in a physiological state where you're much more likely to engage with the fight response. And interestingly, the kind of pattern uh, of neural reactivity that we see in the low callus group is very similar to what we also see in children who've experienced family violence and childhood maltreatment. And this is research that's led by Eamon McCrory, who I uh, lead the research group with. And those children also have elevated levels of conduct problems. So we think that for the low callus group, it may be that at least in part, we see an adaptation to stimuli that is relevant to these children because they live in an unsafe environment. Uh, and it's also stimuli that means that these children are in a state of uh, hypervigilance and stress and are also therefore more likely to lash out because they feel defensive. So where might these sorts of differences at the behavioral and neural level stem from? Are they driven by genetics? Are they driven by um, environmental uh, 
uh, influences. And I've obviously already hinted at that in relation to the low CU group. One of the ways um, in which we can probe the etiology of any given trait or disorder is by uh, using the classical twin design, which relies on a comparison between identical and non-identical twins. And for all intents and purposes, the identical twins are each other's genetic clones. If we genotyped one identical twin and their brother, we couldn't tell which one of them was the father of, of the children uh, of twin one, for instance, because the DNA is identical. Non-identical twins result from a fertilization of two different eggs by two different sperm. They like any other sibling pair, but they're born at the same time, which obviously makes them an ideal comparison to the uh, identical twins. I'm going to give you a little introduction to the twin method. Uh, you will probably hear more about this in Sarah Jaffe's talk uh, on Friday. Uh, and when people do the twin studies, they do very sophisticated model fitting or they do regression analysis with groups. But the basic logic uh, of the twin method is comparison of within pair similarity of the identical and non-identical twins. If the identical twins look on average more similar to each other than the non-identical twins, we can assume that there are genetic influences that drive similarity because we're talking about individuals who share 100% of their DNA versus those who share on average 50% of their DNA. So if genes are important in explaining similarity, the individuals who share all as opposed to half of their DNA should look more similar to each other um, on a given trait. Now, if the identical twin similarity is not exactly half the non-identical twin similarity, then there must be some environmental influences that promote similarity over and above the genetic influences that promote similarity. And these are what we call shared environmental influences in a twin model. The shared environment in a twin model merely just refers to environmental factors that promote similarity between family members. Just because you may not find shared environmental influences in the twin model doesn't mean that family isn't important or that school or neighborhood are not important, but they may act in ways that is individual specific rather than in ways that promote similarity between family members. To the extent that the genetic clones are not 100% identical to each other on any given trait, there must be some non-shared environmental influences individual specific environmental influences that drive this similarity between these genetic clones. And a silly example is if you have identical twins, one of whom lives here in Oxford and the other one who lives in Gold Coast in Australia, they will look remarkably different in terms of their skin pigmentation because one of them has to endure miserable British winters and the other one gets to sun themselves in Australia. They have the same DNA, but their melatonin is ex expressing differently because of the different environmental exposure. <coughs> We've used the twin method and a big twin sample um, here in the UK to study whether there's a difference in the origin of conduct problems between children who have high versus low levels of callous unemotional traits. And I was lucky enough to collaborate with Robert Plomin, who runs the Twins Early Development Study 
uh, which is a study of twins born in England and Wales between 1994 and 1996. Because it's a large, big, large sample of twins, we were able to focus on those children who were on the top 10% for conduct problems, so they were in the abnormal range. And we then divided that sample further to those who also had high levels of CU traits in the top 10% of the sample and those who didn't. And within each of these groups, we compared the identical and non-identical twins. And that gave us an estimate of how heritable were conduct problems for children with high callous traits and how heritable were they for children who had low levels of callous and emotional traits. And what we found was that it, if you had conduct problems in combination with high callous and emotional traits, these conduct problems were strongly heritable. 81% of the group difference in antisocial behavior between these children and the rest of the population was explained by genetic differences. That does not mean that these children are genetically destined to become antisocial but it does mean that they have a genetic vulnerability, which more than likely is going to interact with environmental risk factors, but they are more genetically primed for developing antisocial behavior um, than our children who have conduct problems and low levels of callous and emotional traits for whom the conduct problems are largely explained by environmental factors, both child-specific and those that promote similarity among family members. So essentially what we see are differences in the origin of antisocial behavior depending on whether you have co-occurring callous and emotional traits or not. Now the twin models don't tell us about the genes themselves or the environments. They just tell us about the relative importance of genetic and environmental factors in either explaining variance in a population or group differences. And there have been few studies trying to uh, find what genetic variants might be associated um, with conduct problems. Sadly, many of these studies have not differentiated between uh, groups with high versus low callous and emotional traits. And this is a bit of a pity because one might expect that for those individuals with conduct problems and high callous traits, you might want to focus on genotypes that confer low emotional reactivity and arousal. And for the group with low callous and emotional traits, you might want to look for genotypes that confer high arousal and reactive aggression. And if you pool all of these individuals together, you are at a risk of potentially cancelling out um, some of um, the um, findings. There have been some candidate gene studies um, that have um, implicated those genotypes conferring low emotional reactivity and arousal in relation to high CU and vice versa for the low CU. But particularly in relation to the high callous and emotional trait group, those findings have been in small samples. They have not been replicated. Um, and it's unknown whether many of these findings actually are true findings. I think there is a huge amount of work still to be done, and certainly um, recent um, data also suggests that for the high callous and emotional group, we may be better off looking for rare variants rather than common variants, which is what many of the studies have been focusing on um, until recently. The risk environments may also be different for children with high versus low callous and emotional traits. 
there's a reasonably robust association between conduct problems and harsh and negative parenting in the low callous group. But the high callous group seems to show relative insensitivity to harsh and negative parenting. They seem to have high levels of conduct problems regardless of how harsh or negative the parenting is that they receive. So there's a lot more work to be done, again, systematically looking at these two uh, different subgroups and focusing also beyond just parenting variables, maybe on variables such as peers, or maybe on environmental variables such as intrauterine environment, not just focusing on social environmental variables. I think it's also important that we don't just focus on potential environmental risk factors. Often, there is only a limited amount that we can do about environmental risk, particularly if that risk is historical. It's already happened. We can't make it unhappen. But we have a greater control over protective environmental factors and maybe putting those into place systematically. And in fact, there will be some um, interesting talks at the workshop that will probably touch on this in issue, including talk by uh, Nick uh, Steinbeis on how we may be able to use uh, interventions to promote resilience. And the reason I'm particularly excited about this is that there was a very nice adoption study just published a few months ago looking at uh, the impact of positive and warm parenting on the development of callous and emotional traits. And the study conducted by Luke Hyde and his colleagues, first of all, demonstrated that if your biological parents had severe antisocial behavior, then even if you were adopted away at birth or shortly after, you were more likely to develop high levels of CU traits. Now, this is in line with the notion that there is a genetic predisposition. And even if you're adopted away, you are at a higher risk. However, if you had the biological predisposition but you received, received warm adoptive parenting, you had a reduced risk for developing callous and emotional traits. And that's in line with the notion that clearly the genes are not destiny. Now, this is very encouraging, but of course the adoptive families are a case of what can be rather than a case of what typically is uh, in the world um, outside. So typically in clinics, when people work with children with conduct problems, these children often reside with at least one of their biological parents who may share some of the characteristics of the child and who may be living in more challenging circumstances than the adoptive families um, are encountering. So it's encouraging, but it doesn't necessarily immediately and comfortably translate to parenting interventions as they are implemented in biological families. <clears throat> so to summarize, uh, we have an emerging evidence base regarding different etiology and presentation of children who have conduct problems, either with high or low levels of callous and emotional traits. And we can see differentiation at multiple levels of analysis between these two groups. And this offers an example of how subtle differences in behavioral presentation can be used to motivate systematic investigation of different causal pathways to disorder. These findings, I think, already have some implications for treatment. First of all, 
the obvious one. If there are two groups of children who have different etiology and neurocognitive vulnerability to conduct problems, then we shouldn't assume that identical treatments work for both groups or work equally well for both groups. Clearly, there are common elements in the current intervention programs that will be beneficial for all children with conduct problems. And there's some evidence of that. Both groups do respond to intervention. However, we can get better if we better understand the differential mechanisms, um, and this may guide differentiated approaches to treatment. So whilst we may want to get comprehensive systemic treatments for all children with conduct problems, we may also want to consider adding some adjuncts to the existing treatments that best serve the different neurocognitive profiles of children with high versus low levels of callous and emotional traits. So who are the children who particularly need interventions to regulate emotions? Maybe it's more the group with low callous and emotional traits. We want to investigate, can we train empathy in children with high levels of callous and emotional traits? And to what extent might they be limited by their instinctive reactivity to other people's emotions and other people's distress? And if they are limited up to a point, we may need to think about how we can work around that. Can we get them interested in behaving pro-socially by making it very obvious to them what's in it for them, how they can look after number one. So we may not get them um, to behave well by the same means as we get typical children to behave well. We may need to work around the kind of difficulties that those children have. And there's a real challenge as we try and understand these children further uh, in bringing together the different levels of analysis. It's what I've sort of called a pick and mix of problems uh, that is ahead of us. A big challenge that I've already mentioned is how do we best define our phenotypes when we study? To date, we've mainly worked backwards. We've started with the behavior, as I have covered in this lecture. We need more work with mechanisms as a starting point, but then that presents us with the multifinality problem. If we try and understand genetic vulnerabilities, we may need to look for different risk factors for high and low CU groups. These groups show a very different profile of emotional reactivity. It would be foolish to expect that all of the risk genes are equivalent for these two groups. The impact of genetic risk is also clearly different, with it being a bigger um, originator of conduct problems for high CU children than for low CU children. We have found it hard to find the genes. There are probably multiple genes of uh, small effect size. We also might expect that the effects of the genotypes only penetrate in certain environments, so we need to get better at understanding that. There's likely to be gene-gene interaction, which is going to be very complex to study. And there are likely to be rare variants, which, again, will be challenging to find because they will only affect uh, certain small subsections of the population. We, I think, also need to get a bit more creative in trying to understand environmental risk. The risk factors may be different for high and low CU groups. We should probably think about focusing on not just social risk factors, but also thinking about uh, more contextual or even intrauterine uh, environmental risk factors. 
We also often just focus on one environmental risk when we know that all of these children typically grow up in environments that are characterized by multiple risk factors. So in our studies of children who've been maltreated, the norm is for the children to have experienced multiple forms of maltreatment rather than a single form of maltreatment. So it will be very challenging to try and understand how these environmental risk factors impact children at different time points what are the cumulative effects? Are there interactive effects? And I think that it's equally important, if not more important, to try and better understand protective factors, both those that occur naturally and also those that we can possibly deliver um, as treatments to study how we can promote resilience. There's a challenge in understanding how brain development unfolds for different subgroups of children with conduct problems. At the moment, we've got cross-sectional studies, and we have cross-sectional studies of relatively small samples. So how do these children's brains look like as they develop? And how malleable are the neural differences that we see? We need to understand gene environment correlation, and there will be some very interesting talks um, about this uh, on Friday, both by Peter Diane and also by Sarah Jaffe. Uh, many of the parenting and the family and peer variables that are related to conduct problems have a genetic component. So they reflect individuals' own predisposition and how that shapes the environment around them. And as we better understand how the environmental risk operates and to what extent it's shaped by the individuals themselves, we start to get a better idea of how we might want to constrain certain interventions and whether certain interventions may or may not uh, be the best ones to work for these children. There are also a number of practical and ethical challenges. If we want to bring together these multiple levels of analyses, we have to contend with trying to merge very different research traditions. So genetic studies now have hundreds of thousands of participants. You're not going to be able to scan hundreds of thousands of participants. So we may, in certain areas, have to wait a little bit before we can successfully bring together uh, different levels of analysis. There's also challenges in trying to avoid misuse of the information that we generate when we try and understand the mechanisms. So there have been, there's been huge excitement about biomarkers, for instance, but equally there has been fear that these biomarkers might be used in an irresponsible way. As a scientist, you don't have a full control over how your data are used, and you should not not study something because you worry that there may be an irresponsible person who misuses that information. But we do need to engage with ethicists um, in order to ensure that this information is applied as responsibly as possible. And we need to get people to understand that just because we may find a biological indicator, that doesn't mean that we're looking for biological treatment, or it doesn't mean that something is entrenched and not responsive to environmental change. We also need to be mindful about issues of labeling when we're working with uh, children. So in lecture two, I hope to pick up from here and really more talk about multiple levels of analysis in the context of development, talk a little bit about individuals as agents in creating their 
own environments, in effect priming some of the more in-depth talks that are going to be um, about gene environment correlation on Friday. And I will also want to talk about adaptation and latent vulnerability. And there are going to be excellent talks at the workshop by uh, Charlotte Cecil on epigenetics and by Amy McCrory on latent vulnerability. And I think that this concept of how some of the behavioral outcomes that we see may actually represent individuals trying to survive in and fit into uh, certain environments is something that is important to consider when we try and understand emergence of psychiatric disorders. I will also want to consider the challenge of translating from all of this research on individual differences and group differences into clinic. How can we take these data that talk about variation in a population or group differences and uh, make it make some sense in a clinical set setting and help us um, constrain clinical decision making. I'm going to stop here tonight. I'm going to acknowledge uh, people who take part in our research, uh, people who either are currently or have been in our unit, in particular um, Eamon who co-directs the unit with me. I uh, want to acknowledge a number of collaborators and uh, people who fund us and I'm very happy um, to take questions. Thank you.